So everybody go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5. Thank you. There you go. Uh, Matthew 5. We're, we're, we're continuing to, to work through uh, the Beatitudes. Um, and, and you know this a little bit, but I, but I just want to catch you up with, with where we've been going and, and kind of let you know what the theme continues to be. Here, here's what's happening as we work through uh, the Beatitudes. Jesus is not changing anything, right? But he is redirecting something that, that all of the followers of God should have known and understood. Jesus is redirecting them uh, to this truth that it's not about external righteousness, but it's about internal righteousness, right? The goal was not for them to behave in a certain way. The goal was for them simply to have a heart that was tuned to God and to be seeking first his righteousness and then letting everything else flow from that. The problem is it wasn't really working in Judaism. It wasn't working for the Israelites because they had become focused on right-looking behavior, and they had forgotten that the important thing was internal. And and we're going to look at this, but I I want you to be clear. This isn't a new teaching that Jesus is sharing. He is teaching something new, but this isn't the new part, right? This is is stuff that they should have known. Like David gave this instruction to Solomon back in 1 Chronicles. Solomon, my son, learn to know the God of your father intimately, Know him intimately with your heart. Worship and serve him with your whole heart and with a willing mind. Like this is David pleading with his son who's about to take the throne and lead the entire nation of Israel saying, Son, it comes from here. Love him. Get to know him with your whole heart. Intimately, passionately, with a willing mind. Lead from there. Right? The proverb tells us people may be pure in their own eyes, but the Lord examines their motives. The Lord examines the heart. Right behavior is fine and good. When you do good things, that's good. But it's not what makes you holy. What makes you holy starts in here. Something happens to me sometimes when I harbor anger or resentment or frustration or depression or whatever. I just hold on to it, right? Um, And here's what I think to myself. I think to myself, it's fine because nobody knows. It's just in there and I'll deal with it when I get around to it. When I get around to it is usually when God makes me, right? But I'm just like, whatever, it'll be fine. But invariably something happens before I'm ready to deal with it. It spills out. It spills out, right? I think I've got it locked away and it's no big thing, right? But what happens is eventually out of my humanness, what's in my heart will come out of my mouth. It betrays what's there, right? Because that's the overflow of everything. And so, so Jesus is not teaching something new yet. He's just saying, look, 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 listen, 
This was always about something internal. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, right, didn't teach that you had to do certain behavioral things regardless of what was going on in your heart so that God would accept you. What it taught was that out of the overflow of a heart that's dedicated to God, that's committed to God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, that's devoted to God, that out of the overflow of that, you should want to behave righteously. But somewhere along the way, the people stopped being taught that. And they were being taught instead that the behavior was the most important thing. And not just the behavior that God said, but the behavior that the Pharisees said was important. Religious tradition. We've gotten to a place when Jesus steps on the scene where religious tradition is now more important, considered to be more important than the actual word of God. I'm like, well, how did we get there? Well, we got there similar to how we, we, we know through history, we've seen these kinds of things happen. We talked about the Reformation last week, right? And something that happened in the 16th century um, with the Reformation of the church. And, and when Martin Luther came along and said, time out, it's probably important for people to have Bibles in their own language so that they can read them and understand them. Because at the time, what was happening is all of the liturgy, all of the prayer, all of the hymns, all of the things that were being said and sung, right, were in Latin. Well, guess what people didn't speak or understand? Latin, right? So they'd gather for worship and they'd say these wonderfully beautiful prayers and, and they'd hear this wonderful, beautiful liturgy and they'd sing these songs. The problem is they couldn't understand any of it. They'd read the scriptures, but they didn't understand any of it. So then when the scriptures were done and they'd done all of these things, then what happened is the priest would, would give a homily or a message. And that was in English or whatever language you happen to speak and that you could understand, but you didn't know if it was scriptural you didn't know if it mattered that it was scriptural, right? By and large, what happened slowly over time is that what the, the church taught became synonymous with what God wants, even if they didn't line up. That happens throughout the course of history sometimes, where what the church teaches doesn't line up with what the Word of God teaches, that's why, I, the reason I'm lingering here a little bit is because this is, all of that is to say this, right? Um, that's why you have to know your Bible well. That's why you have to be intimately familiar with the Word of God. That's why you have to know it, excuse me, and love it. That's why the church and the elders have gone to great lengths to make sure that you are as biblically literate as you can be without needing a degree in Greek or Hebrew or without needing degrees in homiletics, without needing degrees in exegesis. All of those are, are, are theological words you don't care about, right? But, but without needing all of those things, the church is concerned with you being biblically literate because I am a flawed human being. 
And there are times when, when out of my, my best understanding, I may teach something. I hope not, right? You can check me on this, but I hope not. But I may be teaching something or a pastor before me or after me or elders or Sunday school teachers or whatever may be teaching something that's contrary to what the Word of God says. And at some point in time, if you are not familiar with your Bible, if you don't know the Word of God, if you don't love the Word of God, if you can't read and digest and understand and meditate on the Word of God, how are you going to know that I'm leading you astray? How would you know? You wouldn't know. You would come in, you would sit down, you would take my word for it, you would leave, and all the while you could be believing something heretical. A heresy that instead of getting you closer and closer to God is leading you further and further away. Listen, you're like, Matt, I thought we were going to talk about Matthew 5. We are, but but in a second. You've got to know your Bible. That's why we do sermon series like this, where we go verse by verse understanding what does this mean so that we can get in the habit. That's why we, when we did Corinthians or Ephesians, we bought those little black study Bibles that you could go along with, that you could take your notes and you could get good at doing your own Bible study leading up to the week, right? These are things that matter because the Word of God matters. The Word of God is infinitely more important than what Matt thinks or says. It just is. Or anybody else for that matter. And the word of God was infinitely more important than what the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law said. But the people didn't know it. Right at the time, right? The time of Jesus, the common language for, for Israel had shifted. It used to be Hebrew. All of the Old Testament, with the exception of some parts of Daniel and Ezra, are written in Hebrew. Those parts in Daniel and Ezra are written in Aramaic right? Hebrew was the common language for Israel in the Old Testament. But after the exile, when the Jews in large part went into exile in Assyria and Babylon and during that time period, that common language of Hebrew shifted and it became Aramaic, which is a Semitic language similar to Hebrew, but it's not Hebrew. And so now they know Greek. Greek is the common language, right? And they know Aramaic, But what they don't know any longer is Hebrew. And then they come back after the exile and they've got these scriptures that are in Hebrew. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law start to teach. But the people aren't reading this. Now, throughout the Roman Empire, there was something called the Septuagint, which is the the Old Testament that had been translated into Greek. But, But the Pharisees and the scribes didn't allow that in Jerusalem. They stuck with the the Hebrew scriptures, right? They were like, no, we're old King James. That's it. Because that's what they had. They had the old King James. Listen, if you don't know me while I'm kidding, (laughs) they did not have the old King James. Neither do I. Anyway, here's the deal. So so they're reading these things in Hebrew. People don't know what Hebrew is. They're they're doing their liturgy in Hebrew. People don't understand, right? They're, They're saying the Shema. They're doing these things. And then... When that's done, the Pharisees are teaching. But they're teaching their own traditions. They're teaching their own ideas as if they come from God. And so now by the time you get to Jesus, he's looking at a group of people who have elevated all of these man-made traditions 
over and above the things that God actually said in his word. And Jesus is coming along and he's saying, enough is enough. Right? He's saying, listen, this isn't ever about outward behavior. Outward behavior flows naturally from your heart. This is about something different. Right? And so that's been part of the whole process that we've been going through here is that Jesus has been reestablishing what it is that God wants. And God wants the heart. And so now in the rest of chapter 5, he is giving us some reframes of things we thought we knew that were behaviorally focused. And he's saying, no, 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 no. It wasn't about behavior. It was about heart. Okay? All right. Let's dig in. Chapter 5, we're we're starting in verse 21. We're going to go through verse 26. We're going to work through this pretty methodically here, especially at the beginning. Here's what Jesus says. He says, you've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you will be subject to judgment. And, and when were their ancestors told that? Well, their ancestors were told that um, from the very beginning, right? This was a, a law that God established in Genesis. Um, uh, we, we see it first come to fruition when the first sin, the first sin is Uh, Well, the first sin after rebellion to God in the garden. The first sin is Cain killing Abel. Genesis 4. Sin enters the world in Genesis 3. And then we have to look all the way ahead to the very next chapter in Scripture to find out that that sin has resulted in a heart that wants to commit murder. And why? Why does Cain want to kill Abel? Well, Cain wants to kill Abel because his heart is wonky. Cain wants to kill Abel because Abel presented a sacrifice that God accepted. God didn't accept Cain's sacrifice. He rejected Cain's sacrifice. Why did he reject Cain's sacrifice? Because it didn't come from a right heart. And so because his heart was wrong, God rejected his worship. And because that stoked in him anger and frustration and jealousy and confusion. He lashed out and he kills his brother. And murder has been in the world ever since. And, and, and so when Jesus says this, he's like, look, you heard, right? It's not new. It was God's law from a long time ago that you should not murder. Exodus 20 was one of the Ten Commandments. You must not murder. And the punishment for murder is your life. Capital punishment. Right? And and, and so God says, you must not murder. And if anyone takes a human life, look, I mean, if you murder, your life will be taken from you by human hands. Because God made human beings in his own image. And when you murder someone, you are causing evil and harm and violating the very image of God that's in that person. That's just it. And I always have to clarify when we talk murder that we're not talking killing. We're talking murder, right? The Bible um, shows us examples and, and even commends things like just war at times, 
um, talks about making accommodation for accidental homicide, when you accidentally were to kill someone, right? But when the Bible talks about murder, the Bible is talking about this thing that I do out of anger and frustration towards another person, right? This thing that I do out of my own, the seat of my emotion that I direct towards you and I respond and I would take your life. That would be considered murder. And God says, don't do that. Right? This is like the easiest sermon ever so far. You tracking with me? Don't kill people. Don't be angry with people. Lash out at them and kill them. And if you do, don't be surprised that the punishment is capital. Because that's what you deserve. Not only because you violated another person's humanity, but also because you violated the very image of God. So you'd think that would be enough to stop all the murders, except here's what we know, that today in this country alone, we got like 22,000 murders a year. That's like 60 a day, give or take. Murder is so common in our culture that we, only, we don't even get shocked by it anymore. The only time we really even bother to listen when people are murdered is when it's some kind of extreme circumstance or when it's somebody famous. Otherwise, we treat it kind of like it's just ho-hum. Because we can't get that worked up 60 times a day. And that's just the murders we know about. What about, I mean, there's plenty of people to get away with it, right? And, or we're confused and we think it's natural causes or they disappear and we just never know what happened. And, um, and then there's suicide, which is self-murder. That's not awesome either. And then there's abortion, which is pre-birth murder. We've got all of these things. And, and God says, don't do any of these things. But now we know they're so common in the world. But the fact that they're common in the world doesn't change the fact that we get to feel self-righteous. Because here's what I would gamble. I would gamble that of all the people that are here or will listen to this online, that maybe like four of you tops have actually murdered somebody. I'm just saying, look around. You don't know. But odds are we're all innocent of this most heinous thing. God says, you can't murder. That's made in my image. That person was made in my image. You can't do that. And most of us haven't done that. Almost all of us, I'd bet, haven't done that. And so what happens is we can sit back feeling awfully self-righteous. We haven't murdered. You remember the the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and, and he says, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he's like, well, don't kill people. Honor your parents, right? Don't make idols. And he's like, I've done all that stuff. Feeling very self-righteous. Because when it came to the letter of the law, he had not broken the letter of the law. See, but Jesus is teaching us something different. He's like, it wasn't always about what you did or didn't do. It was about your heart. So here's what he says. You, you've heard our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. That judgment is death, capital punishment. He says, but I'm telling you, that you don't get to sit back smugly and be self-righteous thinking you're better than somebody else because you've never actually pulled the trigger. Because in your heart, every time you've wanted to, every time you've harbored that kind of anger and vitriol and frustration and hatred towards somebody else, you're also subject to that same judgment. As Jesus is saying, you know what? If you harbor that in your heart, you're subject to judgment just like if you'd actually done it. 
And you're like, well, how can that possibly be? Well, listen, Jesus, there's a difference. There's a difference between civil punishment and our spiritual condition. Nobody is going to drag you in front of the court and say, listen, Greg, you were really angry at Matt because he was using you as an example during a sermon. And I know that in your heart, you were in a bad place. Therefore, we are going to put you on death row and we're going to execute you. Well, no, of course we're not doing that, right? There's a difference between a civil response and a spiritual response. Civilly, if you're angry in your heart, the state will not care. They won't care. But spiritually, God says, when you harbor that in your heart, what happens is it's tantamount to the same sin that causes murder. Well, that's, that, that's what Jesus says in Matthew. He says, because from the heart come evil thoughts. From the heart comes murder. From the heart comes adultery. From the heart comes sexual immorality. Out of the heart comes theft. Out of the heart comes lying and slander. All those things come out of the heart. Remember I said earlier, sometimes I think I can lock something up in there, but it's going to spill out. Of course it's going to spill out. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so Jesus is saying, look, you, you can't sit back smug and self-righteous because you've never killed somebody, right? Because in your heart, you're committing that same sin. And I, I want to be clear that this is the kind of anger we're talking about. Now, I'm not talking about like frustration. Like we all get frustrated, right? Like somebody cuts me off and I'm frustrated, but then I let it go and I move on. I don't think about that person anymore. I don't think about what their car almost did to my car. I don't think, or maybe I am lingering there a little bit, um, but I, I don't really focus on that, right? We're not talking about quick frustrations. We're not talking about disappointments. I'm not talking about somebody lashing out at me and I get angry for a second and then I let it go. I'm not talking about offenses that we overlook. When Jesus says, when you harbor anger in your heart, you also are guilty of this sin of murder and you also are going to have to face judgment. This is the kind of anger that, that you get your hands in and you just won't let go. This is the kind of anger that simmers. I'm, I'm imagining you felt this at some point towards some person in the past. This is the kind of anger that you won't let die. This is the kind of anger that you take for walks in your head and you play with it and you think about it. This is the kind of anger that you let take root and it springs up bitterness. You know where this anger comes from more often than not? This anger comes from deep hurt. When you've been hurt, you tend to have this kind of anger that just lives there. And Jesus says, when you let that anger live there and you just let it be there, you're no better spiritually than the person who commits murder. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Matt, that's weird. That's a hard teaching. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, it is a hard teaching. And yeah, it doesn't make sense. Right? This is what we call cognitive dissonance. 
You know, as a, as a, I, I used to be a mental health counselor, not anymore. Um, but, but it was one of the things that I used to teach people a lot when they would come into counseling is that they had to get comfortable. So if you've been in my small groups, we've talked about this a lot too. We have to get comfortable with this idea of cognitive dissonance. Something that doesn't make sense, that yet somehow in my heart of hearts I know is true. Right? As Christians, we struggle with this cognitive dissonance. Right? It's like, I am holy and righteous and redeemed before God, yet I know what my yesterday looked like and it wasn't awesome. Cognitive dissonance. I have to be able to wrestle with both of those things at once. We have to understand this, right? That even though you haven't strangled someone, your desire to do so and your refusal to let it go makes you guilty of the same thing spiritually before God. It's just true. This is the point Jesus is making. This is why this is a hard teaching. It says more than that, right? if you're angry with somebody, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. You're like, well, that's weird. I've called a lot of people idiot. Go ahead. Right? So there's two things here. Um, don't call people idiots. It's not nice. Two, the word idiot is, is misunderstood. The problem is how many of you in your, this is the New Living Translation, translates that word idiot. If you've got a um, ESV or a, a King James or a New King James or a New Century or an NIV or any number of other versions, the word is simply going to be raka, R-A-C-A. The reason that most of those versions don't try to give you a translation is because there isn't a good one. We don't have an English word that's the equivalent of that word. So the NLT, trying to be helpful to you, gives you the word idiot, but it really softens it when it gives you the word idiot. This is the kind of mocking and hatred and vitriol that you would spew at someone. This, that word, raka, is similar to the word that the Roman soldiers would have thrown at Jesus as they put a crown of thorns on him and beat him and mocked him before they crucified him on a cross. That's the kind of word we're talking about there. So Jesus is like, not only if you harbor it in your heart, that's bad, but, but you know what's going to come out of your mouth. You know what's going to come out of your mouth. And you're subject to judgment when that happens. You'll, you'll be brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. That word for curse, some translations use fool, some translations use curse. That idea of curse is basically the equivalent of calling someone a, a godless fool. Of telling somebody that they are a godless fool. And remember, fool, in Greek and Hebrew, fool is not the word we use for silly. Fool is the word we use for open rebellion. So there's some language things there to understand, right? Um, but, but when we call somebody a fool now, we, we simply mean like you made a silly mistake. You did something foolish, right? You were, you were using a lot of hand gestures at the dinner table and you knocked your milk over. That was pretty foolish of you. You should have been able to know that doing this at the dinner table was going to cause your milk to fall over. When they say foolish, they mean you have openly rebelled against authority. Open rebellion. So what's happened now is we're saying that, that not only when you harbor it in your heart, that's bad. 
It's even worse when out of the overflow of your heart, you're shooting that vitriol at somebody. And now you're going so far as to say that they're in open rebellion to God. Why? Because you don't like them. Because you're harboring something against them. And so Jesus is really clearly telling us, listen, there is no safe place for you to be here. Because this is what people tell me when they used to come to my office for counseling or they come to my office here at the church. Um, a lot of times what people will tell me is that they have a right to be angry. And you've probably felt that way before. I have a right to be angry. They hurt me. They wronged me. And sometimes, guys, listen, I've heard the stories. It's real hurt. And it's real wrong. And that's been done to me. And because I've been wounded in such a real significant way, I am angry and it's in my heart and I don't want to let it go and I can't seem to let it go and it wants to live there. And out of the overflow of what's in my heart, I lash out. Even if I try to keep it locked up most of the time, I will lash out and I will blaspheme and I will hurt people. And Jesus is saying, listen, it's never okay. And you might feel like it's okay because here's what you might really feel. Cognitive dissonance, right? We got to get comfortable with this because you might really in your heart of hearts, you might feel like you've earned that hate. Like you've earned it, right? You paid a high price for that hate and you are not letting it go. But Jesus is telling you, when you refuse to let it go, you're no better than a murderer. It's like you killed. This is a tough teaching. It's a tough place to live. He goes on. So what do we do about it? He says, so here's what you do. If you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and this is the sacrifice, remember where we would come and we would offer our animal so that the slaughtering of the animal would forgive us temporarily for our sins. That's what would happen. Right? So, so if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that somebody has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person and then come and offer your sacrifice to God. So this is basically Jesus saying, so here's how I want you to do this. He's saying, so you've heard, don't murder. And we all agree murder's bad. I'm telling you that it's about your heart, not your actions. God wants a right heart. So in your heart, if you are hurting people in your heart, if you're holding on to anger, if you're harboring this, that it's just as guilty. And so people are like, man, we can't be self-righteous anymore. We understand that we're guilty. Okay, Jesus, what do we do with our guilt? He says, so here's what you do. If you're coming to the altar and you realize that you're guilty, that you have something against somebody or they have something against you, stop pretending to worship God. Because that's all it is at that point. It's pretending. Stop pretending to worship God. Leave your sacrifice and go fix it. As much as it depends on you, go fix it. Then, when you've done everything in your power to fix it, then you come back and you worship God. So you understand you can't do both at once. You can't harbor unforgiveness and hatred towards somebody while at the same time thanking God for forgiving you of all of the things that you've done that have gotten in the way. But you're like, Matt, that person really hurt me. I've never really hurt God. Seriously? 
you are guilty of the most heinous thing ever. The most heinous crime that anyone in the history of the world has ever or could ever do, we are all guilty of, and that is rejecting a holy God. We have all rejected a holy God. We are as guilty as the next person, and we're coming to God saying, God, please forgive me, while at the same time refusing to forgive somebody else. Jesus told a story like that, right? The guy that owed millions, and he said to the king, I owe you millions, but please have mercy on me. And the king said, fine, I'll forgive your debt. And the guy went to a buddy that owed him a hundred bucks and said, hey, pay me my hundred bucks. I don't have it. Can you please have mercy on me? No, you're going to jail. God said, that's unacceptable. When the king finds out, the one that forgave the millions of dollars of debt, when the king finds that out, he's going to demand that other person be thrown in jail until they pay every penny. Why? Because you can't ask for forgiveness from God. You can't ask God to forgive you while you are refusing to forgive other people. It doesn't work. So he says, leave the sacrifice and go fix it. As much as it depends on you. That's what Paul, Paul says in Romans. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all you can to live in peace with everyone. You might try really hard to be reconciled to somebody, and they might tell you, go fly a kite. And you're like, thank you. Flying kites is fun. They might say, go jump off a bridge. They might say any number of things to you. You can't control their response. You can't control their reaction. What can you control? What depends on you. So God is not giving you an impossible standard here that says you need to go make sure everyone likes you. You need to make sure everyone forgives you. God is giving you the standard here that says, hey, as much as it depends on you, Make sure you're living at peace with everybody. If you're coming to the altar to make a sacrifice and God says, hey, remember how you're harboring hatred against your brother? Don't offer a sacrifice yet. Go fix that. Go forgive them. Go apologize to them. Even worse than that, he says, hey, remember how your neighbor is so mad at you? Go make it right as much as you can. Then come back. And I want to say a word about reconciliation. He says, be reconciled. Um, I don't want you to be confused about this. Reconciliation is always the key. And if we do it well, and both parties are wanting to reconcile, then reconciliation looks like a restoring of the relationship. Right? Let's, let's say that David and I have some kind of beef. And we both decide that we're good, honorable people trying to follow God's will. And so we come together and I confess and he confesses and, and we decide to reconcile because that's what God would want us to. That means that our relationship is restored just like it was before. Right? We're still going to talk. We're still going to hang out. We're still going to go see Marvel movies or do whatever. It's restored. But there are situations where I might go to seek reconciliation where the other person might not make it possible for the relationship to be like it was before. There are some real clear cases where this becomes obvious with abuse, somebody that is dangerous for you to be around, dangerous for your children to be around. 
I can't harbor hatred in those. Somebody has hurt me or hurt my children and wounded me grievously. I, I, I can't harbor hatred towards them. I have to forgive. But I don't always have to put myself right back in that same situation. God isn't asking you to go put yourself in harm's way again, right? If they will be reconciled to you, which means they're going to do whatever it takes to move past that sin, great. Then we can talk about reconciliation. But if they refuse, then at this point, I don't need to necessarily try to make it like it was. And that's a hard thing to figure out sometimes. Um, So I would just say this, ask for help. Talk to your elders Talk to a counselor, a biblical counselor. Um, talk to any number of people that can help you navigate that because that's a tricky one to figure out. Okay, we finish up. These last two verses are kind of commentary on the two before that say, hey, leave your offering, go fix it, then come back and make your offering. Um, he says, when you're on your way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you'll be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you've paid the last penny. And what Jesus here is referring to is a common practice at the time where if you had a debt that you refused to pay or couldn't pay when it was time, right, you couldn't declare bankruptcy, you went to prison, You went to prison until you sold enough stuff or somebody came to your aid and you were able to pay the debt. That's how that was reconciled at that time, right? So if you got a guy that owes you 20 bucks, just go Old New Testament on him and uh, throw him in jail or forgive him. I guess you've worked that out. Forgive him. Never mind. Forgive him. Okay. Um, Vince Durr. (laughs) So um, every time we went to see a movie when Vince was here, I bought the tickets, right? And Vince is always like, oh yeah, I'll pay you back. That dude owes me like 200 bucks. (laughs) I told him that when he left. I'm like, you know, you never paid for any of your tickets. He's like, yeah, that's right. (laughs) And then he moved. (laughs) I doubt Vince listens to our sermons online, but if you do, Vince, but here's the point, right? Like, like that's the way it works. So, so Jesus is using this common um, analogy to help people understand. And the idea is simply this, right? Listen, if you owe somebody, right, financially, you better fix it before they throw you in jail and you won't get out until you pay every penny. If you owe somebody forgiveness, do it now. Now is the time. Fix it now. Because it will get in the way of your worship with God. Because hatred, harboring resentment, bitterness, a refusal to forgive is tantamount spiritually to murder. And so you don't get to sit back self-righteously and and live there. So uh, again, this is a hard teaching for us to grasp. And and if you're like me and you're going through this, and, and I know Pastor David talks about this a lot, you're thinking, well, this is hard, right? Because I have that emotion all the time. Listen, this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, this specific one and all of the ones that are going to come after this, all of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, if we listen to it and we take it seriously, here's what it will do. It will inevitably push us to one undeniable, clear, concise conclusion. 
right? If I really am honest, as I'm reading through the sermon, blessed are the meek, and, and blessed are the poor in spirit, and, and blessed are, 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 are those that are persecuted, that we're happy about it, and, and blessed are all of these things. And you know what? I'm supposed to be salt and light, and, and, and I got to understand Jesus' teaching and all of this. And he says, and oh, by the way, when you're angry with somebody, and listen to me, I have a harbored anger in my heart. And when I have, I'm spiritually guilty of murder. He says, you are a murderer, Hans. Right? And because you're a murderer, guess what you deserve? Capital punishment. Hell. You know that word he used for hell earlier? He was like, if you're not careful, you'll be subject to the fires of hell. Um, when Jesus uses that word hell, he uses it 11 times in the New Testament. It, it was a picture. It's, the word is genna. And it's a picture of this valley outside of Jerusalem. And the valley outside of Jerusalem uh, was a garbage dump where, where um, all of the refuse was continually on fire, never stopping with smoke and stench and billowing fire coming from this valley. That's the picture he used. He's like, listen, that capital punishment that you're guilty of, it's hell. The reason that that was a picture of hell is because that was a place that was so spiritually corrupt that the only thing it was fit for the only thing it was fit for was to be a dump where trash was burned continually. You know why? Because King Ahaz decided when he was king that he would set up an altar in that valley. An altar to gods that weren't real. An altar to gods that he'd been told to stay away from because they were demons. And in setting up that altar... He blasphemed and made that place unholy. And then to make it worse, he sacrificed his own children. Multiples of them. To that fake God in that valley at that mark. And when, when King Josiah went through a godly reform in the land, he tore down the altar and he decided that that valley was no longer fit for anything, could not be redeemed. And so it became the garbage dump for all of Jerusalem, where it was constantly on fire, constantly billowing smoke and flames and stench. That's the word Jesus is using to describe what happens when we're guilty of this. We're guilty of this. That's where we deserve. That's what we deserve. And, and you're like, okay, great. Thank you for that. What am I supposed to do about it? Well, this is the whole point. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is that everything will undeniably, inevitably push you to the one conclusion that you need help and that we need Jesus. We need Jesus. So I'm here to tell you, that I know why you harbor anger in your heart. I know why you do. It's because you've been wounded and hurt terribly. And I know it's not fair. I know you feel like you've earned it. But you got to let it go. Because holding on to it spiritually is akin to murder. And we Christians are not murderers. We are holy and righteous and redeemed. And the truth 
that that's in us and it doesn't belong in us. It's causing us a problem. That truth should drive you to Jesus. The Jesus we sang about. Where our sins are thrown in to a sea that is so deep it has no bottom. And our sins are thrown in to a sea that is so vast that there are no shores for them to wash up on. Because our sins, my hatred, my frustration, all of that that I harbor, it's a lot. But God's mercy is more. And so I'm here to tell you this morning that whatever you're holding on to, you've got to let it go. You've got to let it go. And it's not fast. It's not an overnight thing. But the decision is instantaneous. The decision is momentary. The decision to let it go. And I don't know, maybe I'm talking to all of you, maybe I'm talking to like two of you, I don't know. But listen, let it go. We're going to take communion next week. And I'm going to encourage you to spend this week leaving your gifts at the altar and going to fix what you need to fix. So that next week when we gather together for corporate worship, we can come and just have that communion with God. Now, word of caution. A couple of words of caution. One is, if you're angry at somebody and they don't know it, don't call them on the phone and be like, Hey, Bill, I'm mad at you, and I just wanted you to know that I'm not mad anymore. That's not fair to Bill. But more often than not, when you're angry at somebody, they know it. And you need to deal with that. I'm telling you this now for next week, not so that you can skip because it's hard, but so that when you're here, you can be fully committed and ready to participate in the Lord's Supper. Because this is, this is what we're saying when we say bring an offering, is we're coming to the table and we're saying, God, thank you for forgiving me. And I better not be holding on to something towards somebody else if I'm thanking God for forgiving me. So if you want to talk about something that's eating at you, let's talk. Me, any of the elders are willing to do it. Any of the, the, the church staff, we're all willing to have the conversation. Somebody you know that's over you in the Lord, let's deal with it. Because it's only then that are we really able um, to thank God for what he's done for us. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the blessings that you've poured out. God, we thank you that while we are murderers at heart, that you cast our sin into the sea without bottom or shore. God, your word tells us that you take our sin and you separate it from us as far as the east is from the west. God, so in that truth, in the truth of what you have done for us, help us to commit ourselves to walk in your word and to pursue holiness. And, and God, specifically this morning, help us to let go of anger and hate and bitterness. God, help us to grab hold of that and pull it up at the root 
And we know, God, we know that that is something we cannot do on our own, but that we have to do that through your power and through the Holy Spirit that lives in us to pull that thing up from the root. God, give us a spirit of willingness and a heart of brokenness ready to respond. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for who you are and the blessings that you pour out. I ask that you help us all to be reflective, to search our hearts, to know whatever wickedness is in us so that we can come back next week ready, God, to thank you for your sacrifice and to worship you with our whole hearts that aren't divided. We love you and praise you. Amen.